sermon. He wants a passionate preacher is what he's telling me. And I hope you have one. Does that song unveil the heart? Does it unveil your heart? Does it cause you to remember when the gospel was new and fresh? I don't know what your testimony is, but that's mine. told you we're going to practice. That was practice earlier. All right, here we go. Ready? He is risen. There we go. Okay, there we go. I love, I love those words. Uh, what I want to explore with you this morning is, is how do we know that he is risen? You may be here this morning, and as Aaron already mentioned, uh, Easter is one of those days where Guests come, and, and they may be long-time church attenders elsewhere, but they're not necessarily part of this church. Or maybe someone has just been uh, moved of God to attend here this morning or to join us online. And, and one of the questions they would have is, how do we know that Jesus is risen? He is risen. He is risen indeed. But how do we know? So I'd like to explore that a little bit with you this morning. Uh, because I believe it is the central question people should be asking at Easter. It's not about Easter bunnies, although my brother always told me that the Easter bunny brought me <laughs> and would make some sort of quip about being a cracked egg. Um, but uh, it's the central question, right? What is this Easter? It's Resurrection Day. It, ought, it, it should be the question we're asking, but for us here in this room that have come to know that He is risen and He's risen indeed, this is the question we should be explaining to people. At Easter, at this time of year, there are more people that are willing to listen to the story of Jesus Christ and Him crucified than probably any other point in the year. How do we know that he's risen. Well, I'm going to give you a, a few different reasons, but uh, the main one is because the Bible tells us there were witnesses. There were witnesses. When we're going to break down all the different witnesses uh, that, that can attest to the different phases of, of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and, and what uh, people were able to observe. But I'm telling you, when we think of this idea of witness, would we, would we dare question the eyewitness account of anybody that would say, I was there? Think about some historical event that, and that maybe you're fond of remembering or reading about. And, and, you're, and maybe it was a war. Maybe it was, maybe it was a, uh, just any famous event. But I, I thought the first one that came to my mind was Lincoln being assassinated. There were people who were there. They witnessed what took place. 
We know the truth of what took, that, uh, what took place that particular evening because eyewitnesses gave their account. And the Bible tells us that there were witnesses. And so the, the world wants us to believe that Christianity is a myth, it's fable, it's storytelling. And yet the Bible says very clearly that there were witnesses. And if these witnesses spoke, which they did, and their report was believed, because we would not be sitting here today if people didn't lend credibility to their witness. But over the period of time that, is, that has taken place between then and now, there are people that have doubted. There are people that can't handle the idea of supernatural events, of which the death of Jesus Christ was not supernatural for these witnesses. It was real. It was ugly. So let's talk about some of the things that were witnessed. Basically, I want to just say there were witnesses to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So I'd like to just walk us through this for a minute. And if you're questioning the, the veracity uh, of Jesus Christ, is he true? Is he genuine? Then I ask you to consider for today the truth of, of Scripture and the, the witnesses that were present. I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, I think Todd is the one. Todd, did you mention the book to me? Um, I think it was called uh, um, Who Moved the Stone? That wasn't you? All right. I wanted to give you credit, man, but it wasn't you. Sorry. You should read it. It's a good book. All right? Someone, someone told me about this book, Who Moved the Stone? And I think it was written in 1930. My dad was born in 1931. My mom and dad were born in 1931. This book, and I read most of it. I, I didn't have time to get it all done, but I read most. It's, a, it's the old version of Evidence Demands a Verdict. How many of you read that by Lee Strobel? A number of people. Lee Strobel mentions this book in his book, I'm pretty sure. But I'm thankful for people that have done the due diligence to investigate the eyewitness accounts. Uh, Frank Morrison, I think, is this person's name. And he, he went, like Lee Strobel, he went to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He studied Scripture and he came to faith. And if you're struggling in faith, whether it's you're struggling to come to faith or you're struggling in your faith, let's be encouraged by the eyewitness account that is taking place for all aspects of Jesus' ministry here. Certainly, we can include his life in here, death kind of presumes there was life before death, right? Uh, in Jesus, there's life after death. But we have the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension witnesses. So let's look at the, the witnesses to his death. This is a, a passage that um, uh, we, we've, it's prelude to what was read earlier, all right? So it says with him, now, as we go through this text, I just want you to, I would like you to try to count the number of witnesses, all right? little side note, I don't think you can. All right, but I want you to try, nonetheless, because as you go through here, I think there's an overwhelming number of witnesses to his death, and, and, uh, and, and, and it's recorded for us. Mark 15, starting in verse 27, says, With him they also crucified two robbers, speaking of Jesus, right? Uh, with him also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors, a fulfillment of prophecy. And those who passed by blasphemed him, 
Notice that, those who passed by. We're not, there's no number there, but whoever was passing by, many of them uh, blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. Notice, they're using his words against him. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. <laughs> it's not a fun thing. Happens to me, all right? I say a lot of words. It's okay in my case, right? Call me out. But uh, here, they're pointing to Jesus' prophecy. He, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Here's some more witnesses. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking among themselves with the scribes, more witnesses, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Oh, if he had, what would have taken place at that moment? But he didn't because he had to fulfill Scripture. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. More witnesses, but we know there was two there. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, other witnesses, uh, when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, uh, uh, offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. So this, this, this part is actually fascinating to me. All this mockering, uh, mocking and, and, uh, and blaspheming of Jesus, all this has taken place. Ah, you are not who you said you would be. And then in a moment when he speaks, what happens? Let's see if Elijah will come. Why? His life had been patterned by miracles, by supernatural events. Here are the people responsible for his crucifixion. And when he calls out to God, there's like, wait a minute. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. I don't think this was mocking. I think this was legit. I think they wanted to know, is it going to happen? And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, another witness, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. A lot of witnesses, but we're not done. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph and Salome, Salome, uh, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, one of the striking facets of the gospel story and the, and the resurrection story, the death, burial, and resurrection story that we're looking at as you go through all the gospels is the prominence of women in the presence of Jesus and ministering and being witnesses to all that's going on. Ladies, I mean no offense. I'm just recounting to you what the first century view of the testimony of women was. The testimony of women in the Jewish society, at least, it was worthless. It really meant nothing. And then God comes on the scene and makes them the primary ones and the first ones to witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
be a, I should say, be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody actually witnessed Jesus coming out of that tomb. But he, they are witnesses to his presence in life after death. So it did happen, all right? And that's what we are uh, calling to account for ourselves is that his presence cannot be denied historically and certainly in these lives. So uh, we know that there were witnesses to his death. There are witnesses to his burial. There weren't as many, but they are significant. In Mark 15, uh, starting in verse 42, it says, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So here, here is this Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, we know him to be wealthy. We know he's part of the council. This is called, talk about the Sanhedrin, the actual group who voted as a whole to crucify, to at least seek the crucifixion of Jesus from Pilate. They made a determination that Jesus spoke blasphemously, claiming to be the Son of God. And the high priest, in direct, in direct, um, Action, sinful action to the Word of God, tore his robes. I, I was looking in Leviticus. I forget what chapter it is, but it talks about how the high priest should not tear his clothes. And the high priest tore his clothes. There is so much through this account where we see the, the pointing at Jesus, saying of what he did wrong, and the actual violating of the law that the, 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 the Jewish leaders actually accomplished. And somehow they thought they were right in this whole thing. But here is Joseph of Arimathea, prominent, and he took courage, and he's a disciple of Jesus, and he goes and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, another witness, right, he granted the body to Joseph. So here we see Pilate is responsible for everything that took place on the hill of Golgotha. He is responsible. He is the authority. And he has given that authority. This is part of the aspect of that book, Who Moved the Stone, that I thought was refreshing. Pilate, in this moment, bequeaths responsibility to the body of Jesus, to Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council. And the centurion gives testimony to the truth of his death. Then he brought fine linen, uh, excuse me, bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. In this account, there's not very many witnesses to his burial. Now, there were probably more than Joseph of Arimathea and, and these two Marys. I don't think the three of them were able to accomplish all that was necessary. So there were probably those who helped. But we see a limited number of people, but it was not, the tomb was not a secret place. People would have known where the tomb of Jesus is. And one of the things that we can take comfort in is, is the fact that our faith in Christ and his resurrection, if anyone had been able to produce a body, Christianity would not exist. And we live in a world who is ignorant of the, of the person and work of Christ. And that ignorance needs to be dispelled by those who have come to faith in Christ, those who believe in the veracity of the Scripture, those that can say, 
Listen, I wasn't there, but these eyewitness accounts testify to the truth. And all of church history testifies to the truth that there was not a body in a tomb. In that book, it pointed out, even if you were to consider that the disciples, somebody or somebody had taken the body out, there is no way with the publicity and the, uh, of Jesus's, uh, all that had gone on, that they would ever have been able to do that undercover and keep it secret for history. It's unfathomable. It's unconscionable. You just can't, you can't believe it. He died. He was buried. So now we get to the reason that we celebrate uh, this day. There were witnesses to his resurrection. Again, not the actual him coming out of the tomb, but to his bodily form. He, he spoke to them. They touched him. In Luke 24, verse 13, it says, Now behold, two of them were traveling the same day to the village called Emmaus. We know this story. Here are two disciples. They're discouraged. What happens? It says, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all the things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is that, uh, is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and, and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Folks, listen, we know the rest of the story. He did it. And they're, they're ignorant of it at this moment. This is a beautiful scene. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Why did they bring up this idea of the three days? Because Jesus had told them over and over again, I'm going to be crucified. On the third day, I will rise again. There's like, this is the third day. Today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb, who arrived at the tomb early, astonished us. <clears throat> Excuse me. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Speaking of Peter and John. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, this is Jesus speaking to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Can I stop right now and ask you? Maybe you've heard the gospel three million times in your life. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. Maybe you've grown up in a religious home, and you've gone to church every Sunday of your entire life, but you've never come to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've never come to believe that he is God's son who died for your sins and that he was buried and he resurrected on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures, by the way, showing his power over sin and death, right? Here's the testimony. Jesus is saying, you're, you're slow of heart. You're foolish. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is giving them firsthand information. I have a seminary professor who believed it was these two who penned the, the book of Hebrews, since we don't officially know who the author of he, the book of Hebrews is. Uh, he, he summer, he, he's like, listen, well, it's from Moses and all the prophets. And, and uh, Hebrews is so uh, full of Old Testament um, uh, connections. Uh, that was his theory, all right? He's in heaven now, so he would know the truth. Uh, we have to wait a little bit longer. But he expounded them. He told them. He's, he's, he is the word, and he's explaining all these things. We see just a few verses later. So they rose up that very hour, these same two, after Jesus had revealed himself, and they returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, speaking of Peter. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? We are doubting people. Thomas is not even present in this event. And he's the one called Doubting Thomas. They were all doubting in their hearts. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy this time, I don't know how that quite works, but they didn't believe for joy and marveled. He said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of uh, broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. They have seen him. They have heard him. They have touched him. They have seen him eat. This is eyewitness account of Jesus alive after his betrayal his crucifixion, his burial, and now he's alive. Can we receive the witness of these people and come to faith? There's witnesses also of his ascension, which we're just going to touch on because it's really just a small event. We're going to turn to the book of Acts, but we, we know that Jesus, he didn't just stay alive and and there, I kid you not, there are people that think that he got married and had kids and all this other stuff. I mean, just bizarre type stuff. When the Scripture tells us that he ascended into heaven, look what happened in Acts chapter 1, starting verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven and went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. They were witnesses to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Again, not sure exactly how many people there. There were many people there. And if I don't have scripture for this and I, I don't have it on the screen, but I, I think we're, we can be fairly confident that there will be witnesses on his return and I have to ask, are you ready for his return? Because he is returning. The truthfulness of the word of God. 
It was, his coming was foretold in the Old Testament. The plan of salvation is present in the Old Testament. It's not fully realized until the person of Jesus Christ comes on the scene. And as we see the Holy Spirit working and drawing people, then all this happens. And then throughout church history, of which we are a part, we get to see what God is doing in our age, but our children and our children's 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 children, until the Lord comes, we are all waiting for the event of Him to come. And if He fulfilled all the prophecies of the past, how dare we think that He won't fulfill the prophecies of His second coming? He's coming, and there will be witnesses. So are biblical witnesses enough? Now, this is a, a kind of a trick question, all right? I'm going to say yes, okay? I'm going to say the biblical witness, it is enough from God's perspective and the power of the Scripture, all right? But for people, for many, yes. But for others, no. They can read the book and they can read the book and they can read it and read it and read it and they never come to faith. Whether it's blinders, whether it's their own sin, whether it's their life experience in a family that has uh, never darkened the doors of, of a believing church or whatever, whatever it might be, the biblical witnesses somehow are just not enough. Now, and let's cut these people a break for a minute, all right? There were other people that had Jesus in their sights and they doubted. So are the biblical witnesses enough? For many, yes. For others, no. Doubts persist in people's minds and hearts. And they may be persisting. And I, I would love to be part of the process of dispelling the doubts within your hearts and minds. But I will not have the privilege to speak to every one of you. So if you have doubts, talk to your Christian friends. Ask them the questions. Look to the witness of Scripture. And come to faith that Jesus is who He said He is. What other evidence exists to help people believe in the gospel? There are other uh, things that, that people can, can see as evidence. So what other evidence exists to help people believe in the gospel? We're only look at one, but it's the evidence of a changed life. The evidence of a changed life is a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel. It's part of what led me to Christ. Part. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new cre creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is that verse that we look to that says, Anyone who is born again, anyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, there is something that takes place instantaneously. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That song, There is a Morning, again, I'm, I'm not going to start talking about too much. I'll start crying again. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's my testimony. There is so much that we experience at that moment of salvation that we cannot fully comprehend. But we know it's true because we have been changed from the inside out. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have different perspectives on life. For me, Mr. Potty Mouth turned to where that wasn't a thing anymore. I kid you not, 
I know, I know you might have a hard time believing this, but yeah, it all came out of this mouth, right? And I went to church every Sunday. But I'm telling you, when I got saved, boom, it was gone. I was so thankful, and it was very noticeable to myself and others. He goes on to say in verse 18 through 21, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled to himself through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. A reconciliation has taken place. We are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. He paid our sin debt. His righteousness was given to us. It says that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. For all those who are in Christ, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Do we have a responsibility as believers? Yes, it's right here. We are not to be silent. We are to be ministers of the reconciliation because it was committed to us. This word of reconciliation was committed to us. We have a responsibility. Now when we are ambassadors, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We know what ambassadors do, right? They go out they, with a message that's not their own. It has been given to them, and that's what we have with the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though, I, I love this verse, as though God were pleading through us into the lives of others. As, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. You can be reconciled to God. There is no reason for doubt. For he made him who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It doesn't get much clearer than that. That is what transpires in a person's life when they come to faith in Christ. Their sins that are atoned for through the death of Jesus Christ on that cross. And they are promised new life because as he, we sang about it, as he resurrected, we will resurrect. And we have his righteousness. God looks upon us and sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ for all those who came to faith in him. So the changed life, all right, the changed life of Peter and other disciples is a demonstration of, of this evidence. We can look at Scripture and we can say, Peter, you know, poor Peter, right? Peter the fisherman. Uh, I've read some things where he probably wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, they say, right? He wasn't the intellectual of the crowd. But he was faithful. He's the one that God revealed. Jesus says, but who do you say I am? He says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those words came out of Peter's mouth. And he was the guy who denied Christ and who ran and hid at the, at the, uh, the thought of these young ladies asking him these penetrating questions. And then on the day of Pentecost, he is the one standing in front of crowds in the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance. I think that qualifies as a changed life. What about Paul and the other Jewish leaders? We know the testimony of Paul. We've heard it before. Persecuting the church, being willing to see people die because he believed that they were 
doing, they were not doing the will. He believed he was doing the will of God and they were evil until Jesus knocks him down and says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We're told elsewhere that many Jewish priests came to faith in Christ after the day of Pentecost. And we have Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus who were both on the, on the council of the Sanhedrin. So there, there was the, the gospel changes lives. We see others throughout history. You know, you're, many of you are historians. I always think of the, the person who, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. And I, for the life of me, all morning, I can't remember his name. And if you want to shout it out, go ahead. John Newton. There we go. I knew that. No. I knew John knew, right? That's the one that comes to mind. But there are many, many people throughout history that have had a changed life. I'm fond of telling people. I don't tell people my sin. I don't. I mean, I do in private. I won't do it publicly. Sorry. But when I think it will minister to someone, I, I share my background as a way of identifying with a person who is hurting and struggling in an, in an area of sin that I can identify with. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I know who I would be if Christ had not saved me. There's no way I'd be behind this pulpit. I'm a changed life. You are a changed life. Let it speak. The changed life of us, not just me, not just you, but all of us. Think about the power of the witness of the gospel present in this room. Our change, it's immediate, isn't it? We've already talked about it. In a twinkling of an eye, in a moment, right? Well, actually, twinkling of an eye is referring to the the rapture, right? But I'm just saying... Our salvation, we talked about definitive sanctification. We stepped from death to life. It happened the moment we came to saving faith in Christ. When we understood who He was. It's it's faith in who He is and what He's accomplished. It's immediate, but it's also gradual, isn't it? I know so much more today than I knew when I came to faith in Christ. I know so much more today I could bore you for hours about what I know. Because little by little, God has been doing His work and growing me in knowledge. But it's, only, it's not only in knowledge that He grows us. He grows us in our life. And, and our change, it, it brings joy. Doesn't it? The joy of knowing Christ, the joy. I mean, there is a joy. When I got saved, folks, I was all alone. And, and it overcame me like I can't explain. Maybe you had the same experience. Not everybody has the exact same experience. They all have the same reality. We have passed from death to life. But the joy, that over, it was overwhelming joy. But our change also allows sorrows. Don't miss this point. We are changed. Immediately and gradually, but in that gradual nature of our change, there, are, there is great joy, but there are also in that joy. God allows sorrows. Think about the sorrow of Mary. 
Think about the sorrow of the disciples. Think about the sorrow that, that's throughout Scripture, but think about the sorrow that, is, that, that our people in our church body are experiencing this day. Genuine believers in Jesus Christ who are struggling with cancer, who are dealing with the, 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 the recent death of a loved one, and, 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 they're, and they're going through these sorrows. What sustains them in their change? Christ, risen, It makes all the difference. I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that He died for the sins of the world and that He, that he was the Savior. And yet I had no faith in Him because I had never seen my sin on that cross. When you see your sin on that cross, it changes everything. And then when sorrows come into your life, the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit carries you through. If you don't have Christ, you don't know this truth. But for those of us who know Christ, we know this. And we invite you to not only have the joy, but experience the care and love of God as you go through sorrow. As we're doing all this change, people are watching you. Not only just people, but doubters. Those that are, they're kind of attracted to Christ. They're kind of like, ah, I just don't know. No, these people are watching you. People see the evidence of our changed and changing lives and see Christ in us. They are eyewitnesses to the gospel being lived out in the lives of broken, sinful people. For those of you who have come to faith later in your life, you know there are people that don't understand you. They can't understand why you don't do the things you used to do. They don't understand all the things that are going on in your life. They are watching and the evidence of the change in your life as it happened and God did some immediate things, or as you continue to grow and be matured in your faith and, and understanding of the, of the living out of the gospel, people see Christ in you. Have you seen change in your own life which can only be explained by the power of the gospel? I hope the answer is yes. And if it's no, we invite you to come to faith. Would you call out to God and confess your sins to Him, all of them, and come to faith that Jesus Christ paid for all those sins on the cross? Would you do that today? Do you continue to see change? Are, are you believers, Christians? And, and Listen, we're Christians and then there's Christians in name only, right? I mean, the idea that there's a difference, right? This is talking about the ones that have legitimately experienced the saving grace of God and, and have come to faith and, and have seen that change in life. Do you continue to see the change or do you think somehow you have arrived? The gospel is good enough to save me and then I'm on my own and i got to do good works and good deeds. No, you're saved by grace. You're called to live by grace. 
Do you continue to see the change? If not, repent. Something's wrong. We ought to continue to see the maturing work of God in our lives. Is there joy in knowing that you're in Christ? I hope there is. I don't know how you get through a day without it, to be honest with you. Do you know his presence in times of sorrow? You have to answer those questions. We could ask so many other questions. These are not exhaustive questions. These are illustrative of a life changed. If your answers are yes, I believe, then your life is evidence of the truth of the gospel. And if it's no, you need Christ. Christ in us reveals Christ to our community. It's the theme for the year. It's also our responsibility as believers. So let's shine the light of the gospel through both word and action as we go out into a world that is desperately in need of knowing the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and for your word. I thank you, Lord, that we can turn to it and have confidence that it is true. Are there parts we do not understand? Oh, without a doubt. There are parts that confuse us. And as we compare Scripture to Scripture, we, we gradually gain, gain clarity and, and understanding. But certainly, Father, at least on a first read, there are many parts of Scripture that we cannot fully comprehend. And even for us who have been saved for many, many years and have studied, studied, and studied, there are parts we still do not comprehend because we are humans. We are broken. We do not, we have not arrived. We are always in need of maturing in our faith. Lord, I pray that you do your work in the hearts and minds of your people this morning, that they would recommit themselves to knowing you and experiencing the power of the cross in their life, that they would take joy in the living hope that we have, that those who do not have Christ do not possess. Father, may you be glorified in the response of your people. May you be glorified as we sing your praises now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.